welcome and thank you for joining us on this Good Friday evening. Now, as you have probably noticed, when you entered the building this evening, you were directed to one of several foot washing stations placed around the room. Let's just be honest, that's a little awkward. Um, more honesty, feet are kind of gross, not my thing, but as an act of service with my family, we sat down together and we participated in that foot washing as a family. And there is a point to that this evening. Over the last few weeks, we have talked together about the many places that Jesus went in the week leading up to his crucifixion. And tonight, we are fast-forwarding further into that week. I am a kid teacher by trade, by nature, that is who I am, and so I have with me a lovely object lesson. My daughter is going to assist me in demonstrating this evening what we have done with one another. So forward into this week, and Jesus is sitting down to a meal with his disciples, and he knows what is coming. In that moment, he did something remarkable. He got up from the table, he took off his outer layer of uh, clothing, he took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, he took the basin and the water, and then he started going around the table. One by one, he's pouring the water over the feet of his disciples, Then he's taking the time to wash all the dirt, all the grime, all the muck that they had walked in during the day. Wiping all of that away. Then taking the towel around his waist and drying off every disciple's feet. Thank you. This is a very interesting thing for Jesus to do. And to say that the disciples were shocked in seeing their Lord on his hands and knees washing their feet, that's not quite going to cover it. I probably can't exaggerate how strange it was for them to see it. In fact, in John chapter 13, it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said, No, you shall never wash my feet. But there was a point that Jesus was trying to make in this. See, the disciples had been traveling with Jesus. They had seen this man perform miracle after miracle. He opened blind eyes. He made people speak who had never uttered a word. He cast out demons. He healed diseases that people thought were uncurable. 
He brought people back to life. And he is on his hands and knees like a servant washing his disciples' feet. This is incredible because this is a job for the most lowly of servants, which is not who the disciples knew Jesus to be. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the conquering king that has come for them. So what is he doing? See, the religious leaders that they were used to seeing, they would look down on those that they thought were less important than them. It was obey the commands that we're giving to you. Do the things that we're telling you to do. Don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. Just do it. Live your life. Go. And Jesus is here turning all of that on its head. Then he explains to them further what he's doing. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. This small example of service that Jesus demonstrated to the disciples was just giving them a taste of the great sacrifice that was coming. Matthew 20, 28 says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew what was coming. He wasn't a fool, he wasn't blind to what was happening around him. He was prepared and was preparing those closest to him. See, he knew betrayal was on its way. He knew that he was bound to be tried, beaten, tortured, and killed for our sins. And so in this, he was showing the disciples, you lead not to be seen, not to have a spotlight shown on you, but to serve those who everyone forgets about. So church, who are you called to serve? Maybe it's someone you don't necessarily like, someone that you feel has mistreated you. Well, Jesus washed Judas's feet, the very man set to betray him. He washed Peter's feet, the same man that walked with him and saw these miracles, yet denied him three times. So how can we serve those around us? Is it those simple acts of kindness to the people that others typically ignore? Maybe it's just serving where you live, where you work, in your community and surrounding areas. How can we meet the needs of those around us? Are we looking for them? We must humble ourselves as Jesus did 
to be able to serve as Jesus did. And so I want to close with a very simple question. Where in your own life can you follow the example that Jesus set of humbly serving and being a doer of his word? On the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, him and his disciples, minus Judas, of course, left the upper room. As they walked through the streets of Jerusalem, you can imagine they'd see people still preparing for the feasts. And they would have exited the east gate of the temple. They'd have crossed the Kidron Valley and started their ascent up the Mount of Olives. Now near the summit of the Mount of Olives, they would have come to a place called Gethsemane. This garden was a place that Jesus had a right to go to and pray. Most of the disciples stayed at the gate. And then he asked his closest three, Peter, James, and John, to go with him further inside to the garden. Once he went in, we don't realize it, but the emotion that Jesus must have on him right now. As I said, tonight is the night that he's going to be betrayed, which means tomorrow is the cross. So the anxiety, the fear, the forethought of knowing that all that's about to come, he looks at his closest three and he says, pray that you don't fall into temptation. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's asking his three closest to be with him as loneliness could be setting in as he's getting ready to take the sins of the world with him. So he asks his closest three, stay here and pray while well, I'll go off. He's about to have one more moment with the Father alone. After all, it's not Golgotha where suffering starts for Jesus, but here in Gethsemane. As Jesus would have found a time to be alone in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane with God, he would not be out of eye shot of the, the closest three, but he'd be out of earshot. As he has this intimate moment with God to share where his spirit is. You know, he's in Gethsemane. Gethsemane, which means all of press. We can imagine that right now Jesus' spirit is just pressed, crushed with what's about to happen. He knows the betrayal is coming and he knows the cross is coming tomorrow. Luke tells us this way in chapter 22. As Jesus is praying and having this alone moment with God, he says to his father, God, if there be another way, take this cup from me. Mean the suffering. If there be any other way, however, if not, your will be done. And then as he's here alone and struggling with that crushed spirit, an angel comes to give him strength and resolve. He's under so much pressure, so much stress, that the gospel writer of Luke tells us that not only is he sweating, but blood is coming, which means there's blood vessels bursting in his forehead because of the pressure and the stress he is under. So let's look at this. First, God, if it be your will, take this cup. What Jesus is saying is if there's any other way for all of humanity to be saved, for all time. Is there another way? But if not, God, I will still do it. Secondly, 
an angel comes to him. I love this picture that Luke paints because there's only two times that an angel comes to Jesus. This time here in the Garden of Gethsemane and then in the wilderness as he's battling Satan. But maybe what we don't realize is right now in this moment, as I mentioned before, Gethsemane is where the suffering starts. This is where the battle for, with Satan really takes place. Jesus is getting ready to take the cross on for humanity. And an angel comes to give him strength and resolve. And yes, blood is pouring out already without any punishment being bore upon him yet because of the stress and the feeling he has. Try to realize this. He is taking on all the condemnation. He's going to take on all the wrath of God for us, all of humanity at all time. And this is the moment he has with God. And the most important thing that happens as he looks at God up and says, hey, if there be another way, take this cup from me. But your will be done. In this moment, what Jesus is doing is surrendering and saying, you know what? I'm ready to walk through with this. And for us, thank God he did. We know that he is the perfecter of our faith. But in this moment, he's asking God if there's another way. But he still chooses the will of God and takes on all of sin for us because he surrendered. times that night, as Jesus was alone in the garden, he walked back to his disciples. And what did he find? He found them asleep. Yeah, the same disciples that he had asked to pray to guard them against temptation were asleep. My question is this, are we asleep? Are you asleep? Tonight as you came in, you got a rock. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do with this rock here in a second. This rock represents our sin, our evil desires, our thoughts. And as you had this with you, from the moment you came into our building, walked into the auditorium, this has been with you constantly. What you're gonna do now, when the video ends, is you're gonna go to one of our tables, and you're gonna pray. And you're gonna pray for a couple things. Number one, I want you to pray for this. Thank God that we have the sacrifice of Jesus. That he still walked through, took the cup, and suffered for us. Secondly, you're gonna pray that you give this over. Whatever this is for you, whether it's sin, evil thoughts, hate, lust, maybe it's fears, anxieties, doubts. And as you go and you pray at these tables, you're going to leave this rock at the foot of that table. And here's why you're going to do that. It was never ours to carry. It's not yours to have and to hold on to, constantly weighing you down. 
Jesus took the cup, went to the cross. He surrendered so that when we could surrender, it goes to him and it stays with him. That's what Jesus did. When we talk about that word surrender, most people don't like that word. It's scary or it sounds cowardice. It's not. When we surrender over our desires, our sins, we get the fulfillment that God truly wanted from us. We get to be in community with him if we just surrender. So do that now. And I hope and I pray that you feel peace from knowing since Jesus surrendered that we can surrender and be in glory. Time around the table with family and friends matters. It's where we get to share stories. It's where we learn about all of the family traditions and the family stories that have been passed down. But if your family is anything like mine, most meals get consumed so fast because you're rushing off to the next thing. But there's something about taking the time to sit down, to share a meal, to slow down the pace of life. And in those times when we actually get to sit around the table, the community is so much richer. The memories we share, the laughs we have, the jokes we tell, Maybe even sometimes those conversations that go a little bit deeper. To talk about how to live out our faith, how to be a good friend, what it really means to love our neighbor. I mean, have you thought about how many times Jesus sat around a table? Who he sat there with? He heals Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law and then sits down for dinner. Three times throughout the Gospels, he goes to different homes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and he sits down with them. He goes to Matthew, the tax collector's house. And this night, the last night of his life here on earth. After a busy week since he's entered Jerusalem, he's been celebrated with palm branches. He's paused as he looks over the city and weeps for what he sees. He's walked into the temple tables and flipped, or into the temple and flipped the tables. Because of what he sees happening in God's house that is supposed to be a house of prayer. He's been challenged every time he turns around by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Trying to trip him up. He's taught in the temple every day. But now, now it's time to slow down. It's time to have dinner. It's time for him to sit 
and enjoy the Passover meal with his disciples, his closest friends. Listen to the story. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived, and when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, Go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where can I eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set. That is where you should prepare a meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. This meal that the Jewish people had been celebrating for centuries was a meal that told their story, a meal that gave them their identity, and a meal that was a tangible reminder that the God they followed and the God they served would always provide for their deepest needs. His presence brings hope, and as they ate this meal every year, they remembered how God provided for them in Egypt. They would begin the meal with bitter herbs, normally horseradish, to remind them of the bitterness and the pain of the slavery that they lived in in Egypt. After that, they would take the parsley and they would dip it in the salt water and then eat it to remind them of the tears they shed as slaves in Egypt, of the pain that they endured. There was a mixture of apples and walnuts mashed together that as they ate was a visual representation of the mortar that they used to hold the bricks together as they built Pharaoh's kingdom. There was an egg on the plate. A reminder of the hope and new life that came and was given birth by the trials that they faced. There was unleavened bread. The bread that was baked the night of Passover when they had to do it in such a rush, they'd clean their house of all the yeast. There was nothing to cause the bread to rise. And so that first Passover, they ate unleavened or flat bread. It was also a reminder again of God's faithfulness in the desert when there was no food to eat. But they woke up every morning to manna. And lastly, there was the lamb. The lamb that had given its life. So that they could paint the doorposts of their house. So that their son would, or firstborn would be spared. As God passed over. A reminder of God's provision. A reminder of the sacrifice. The Passover meal was a reminder of the cost of their freedom. 
And on this night, Jesus will bring deeper meaning and more significance to this meal than they even imagined. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together. At the table, Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourself, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took a second loaf of bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After dinner, he took another glass of wine. Said, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Jesus said to his disciples that night in the upper room, I am the Messiah. I am the one you have waited for. And he says to us today, I'm the savior of the world. Jesus' presence in this meal, in this night, is a constant reminder for us that even in the midst of life's hardest trials, in the midst of life's deepest pain, in the midst of the hurts, when it feels like there's no way out, God, on a cross reforms our identity. Jesus' sacrifice on that cross forgives and redeems us so that we can go and freely serve our communities. This meal reminds us, this evening reminds us, each time we celebrate communion, we're reminded of the cost that Jesus paid and of the freedom that we received. But I hope we're also reminded that this was once for all payment and we never have to do it again. We're reminded that God on a cross provides forgiveness for sins that otherwise we'd never be forgiven for. Barnabas Piper says this, the same God who smiles on the brilliance of wildflowers and feeds a baby sparrow sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for sins already committed. Jesus was the last and final sacrifice, the flawless lamb able to redeem all sinners and pay for all sins once and for all time. Jesus is God's perfect and complete provision the answer to every person's deepest question and the fulfillment of their deepest needs. As we come tonight to the table, we remember that this life is not all we have. We have a future that was sealed by Christ's death and resurrection. 
But this meal should also serve as a reminder of what's been done for us. It's now our responsibility to share with others. Another theologian says, Jesus gave his body and blood to his disciples in bread and wine. Amazed at such a token and little understanding what they did, Peter and John and the rest reached out their hands and took their master and their God. Whatever else they knew or did not know, they knew they were committed to him. And they knew that somehow they should live it out. As we prepare to go to the table tonight, I want to remind you Who was at this first table? Peter was there. Everybody loves Peter's stories. But Peter's the one who in just a few hours will turn his back after promising never to on his Savior. Matthew was there. The tax collector despised, an outsider, a thief who walked with Jesus and sits at this table. Thomas was there. The one who said, I won't believe he actually rose from the dead until I can put my finger in the hole in his hand. The one who doubted one who questioned, sits at the table tonight with Jesus. And lastly, and most amazingly, Judas is there. The one who's already decided in his heart, who's already taken the money to turn Jesus over to execution, sits at the table. This meal that Jesus was so eager to eat with his disciples is a meal that formed their identity and ours. It's a meal that Jesus paid the price so that we could be free. But in our freedom, we're free to fully serve and to love those around us. So as you prepare to go and celebrate with your family tonight, I want you to remember what Jesus has done, what his death meant, what it means for you and for me. This world's not all we'll know. We're forgiven. We're free. And we have an amazing opportunity to go and tell that message to anyone we meet. So let me give you a few instructions. There are six tables in the room. The four in the corners have regular bread and grape juice. As a family, in just a moment, I'll invite you to get up and go to one of those four, if you'd like, and pray. I want you to spend some time before you just take the elements thanking Jesus for what he's done. Thanking him for the price he paid and celebrating the new life that you have. 
There are two in the center of the room as well. Those have gluten-free bread. So if you're gluten-free, you can go to one of those. If you're here tonight alone and you're like, I don't have family, that's, we're so glad you came. And members of our leadership team will be spread out around the room and would love to serve you communion whenever you're ready. After you have spent some time reflecting on what God has done. It's Friday. The light of the world hidden in a tomb. An empty cross. God in a grave for us. As you leave tonight, we ask that you leave in silence reflecting on what God has done, on the cost he paid for you and for me. But Sunday's coming, and we can't wait to worship with you then. Go in peace.